0: Well, if you're watching this video, that means uh, the ice came, uh, because this is being filmed on uh, Sunday afternoon, and it's Curtis Scheidler and myself sitting in the sanctuary at the West Campus. There's nobody else in the room. So if this feels odd, it is odd uh, to deliver this talk to a, an empty auditorium, but I wanted to get it in the can just in case the ice comes and we're not able to film it on Tuesday morning like we normally do. So. Um, if you're watching this, that means that actually happened. Uh, and so I'm going to go ahead and get in right into the lesson for this week. We're going to be in chapter uh, two and three of the book of Hebrews. Uh, but before we get started, let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you for the, the technology that makes this possible, that we can come and record this lesson and get it ready to be out there for men to watch. And so, Father, I thank you for Curtis, for taking time in his Sunday afternoon to help me get this recorded. And I pray, Father, that uh, you would use this mightily. And uh, we continue to pray that the ice won't come and this might not even be necessary. But uh, thank you that we can prepare ahead of time for just such an event like this. And so, Lord, would you use this lesson and speak into our hearts and help us to hear what you would have us to hear as we dig into these two chapters and just the, the depth is incredible The information is so practical and make it real in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Hey, uh, just by way of reminder, last week, um, we looked at chapter one, uh, just in kind of an overview And chapter one, uh, gave us a, a list. As many times as I've read the book of Hebrews and taught through Hebrews, I've never seen this list quite the same way. And uh, I told you that I I was tempted to take that list and put it on a three by five card, put it on my dashboard of my car, put it on the mirror uh, in the morning so that I would be reminded. And the list uh, is a list of the attributes of Christ. And uh, the reason he put it there, I believe in chapter one was to prepare them for everything that's gonna come chapter two, three, all the way through to the end of the book, chapter 13. And and so what I did is I went back and I actually created a three by five card. uh, And I've printed those out. Those are available uh, for you at every venue. And it basically just says, consider Jesus. And then it goes through verse two, all the way through verse 13. And it's all the things he talks about in chapter one. And uh, I've already been keeping this in my car and it's helped me think on Jesus. Think about who he is, where he is, what he's doing. And and I think that's gonna be a tremendous help as we go through this book, but also as we go through our day, as we go through our week, through this year, to remember who Jesus is, where he is, what he's up to. Because as I said last week, he's not on vacation. He's not on an extended holiday. He is busy on our behalf, interceding on our behalf, sitting at the right hand of God Almighty in heaven. And one day he's returning. So we want to pick up where we left off last week. And we looked at this idea of a great salvation. It's the name of the whole series. And the word great, I think I mentioned this last week, in the Greek is not just a superlative. It just, it's not like I had a great steak, I had a great time, I had a great holiday. Um, it'll be great if the Cowboys win a playoff game this year. It's, it's much more than that. It's a word that actually means great, mighty, so great in size. It's really a word that has to do with um, size and extent. And, And I think the best way to help you understand that is to kind of flesh it out a little bit. What he's telling us, the author is telling us is that our salvation is all these things. It's beyond comparison. Nothing can compare to this salvation. You can't compare it to the old covenant. You can't compare it to Judaism. You can't compare it to any other religion. Uh, Any other methodology, it's beyond compare. It's unequaled in magnitude. That's really what the word means. There's nothing that can equal it in terms of its magnitude, its impact. It's unrivaled in significance. Uh, A lot of things can happen in life that are significant, but nothing compares to this. There's nothing. The, The we studied uh, last semester the, the Exodus and the people of Israel being set free from their captivity in Egypt. And as significant as that was, it's nothing compared to this. As significant as it was for them to cross over the Red Sea on dry ground, that's nothing compared to this. And remember the audience to whom the author is writing is, is made up of Jewish Christians. Those born in the Jewish faith Jewish heritage, who've placed their faith in the Messiah, but they're being tempted because of their surroundings living outside of Israel in Greek speaking countries. They're, they're under pressure and they're beginning to think about reverting back to Judaism. And he's trying to let them know that nothing, including Judaism, including the law, including all the things they grew up with, is comparable to this great salvation. It's immeasurable. It's beyond our capacity to understand. It's without parallel. And so I think you're beginning to get the idea that when he says so great a salvation, everything about it is bigger and better than anything you could ever come up with, especially the outcome. This great salvation has an outcome that nothing else can offer you and I. It has an Outcome, but it also has something happening right here, right now, in my life and in your life that is far better than anything the world can offer us. I love this passage. Listen what it says. I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love, now listen to what he says, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Look at at all these words. Uh, they're, They're words of size, breadth, length, height, depth, surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, size, uh, scope, eminence, magnitude. What Paul is saying to the Ephesian believers is basically what the author of Hebrews is saying. And it's this, this idea that you've got to get your head around the greatness of what you've received. And he even says in this, this is a, basically an expression of his prayer for them that you would understand just how great this salvation really is. It, it surpasses everything. It surpasses knowledge. And what he means by that, this is really interesting to me, is that it's not experiential knowledge. I mean, it's experiential knowledge, not theoretical. What do I mean by that? Well, it's knowledge that you've lived through. It's not book learning. It's something that's happened to you in your life. This knowledge is greater than just the capacity to hear information and process it. It's a knowing based on intimacy, not intimation. It's not something that you think is true. You know, it's true because you have this intimate relationship with God, the father through Jesus Christ, the son. It's actual, not hypothetical. It's not a theory. It's reality. And see, he wants them to know that it's concrete, not conceptual. And for many of us in our Christian walk, the the salvation we've accepted, that we've embraced, that we've been gifted by God through Jesus Christ, his son, is too often conceptual, hypothetical, theoretical. It it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel enough. Heaven doesn't seem like it's real because we can't see it. We can't understand it. We can't fathom it. So really, at the end end of the day, what Paul is saying is that, it's it's the difference between saying God is love and I am loved by God. You know, everybody wants to say God is love. As a matter of fact, even those who don't necessarily believe in God want to believe in a God who is all love, who would never harm anybody, who would never condemn anybody, who would never send anybody to an eternity in hell. They, They want that kind of God But that doesn't mean anything. But when you can say, I am loved by God, I've sensed it, I've felt it, I've experienced it, that's a big difference. It's no longer theoretical, it's no longer hypothetical. And that's really what this is all about because as we looked at in the first few verses of chapter two last week, he says, therefore, based on everything we saw in chapter one, based on that list of all these realities concerning Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, the gospel, the good news, salvation in Christ alone. We, we need to go back to that, pay attention to it lest we drift away. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So there's that great salvation again. We didn't really look at this last week, and I want to start here because he he says something that's a little bit confusing. What's he talking about? As a matter of fact, much of the letter is confusing because it's incredibly deep. It's incredibly rich. But listen to what he says. He goes, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Well, what is this message? Well, we know it's the message of the gospel, ultimately, because that's what he's really talking about. But is that what he's referencing here? What's the message that he's talking about that these angels declared? Well, I think he's talking about the Mosaic law. See, one of the things he's gonna do as we work our way through this book is he's going to constantly juxtapose, compare, contrast the law, the old covenant with the new covenant of grace. And he's gonna show that one is better than the other. The new is better than the old. It surpasses, it replaces the old. And so he's beginning to talk about this message that angels delivered. See, when God gave the law at Mount Sinai, we studied this last semester in the book of Exodus. When, when he gave the law at Mount Sinai, it was accompanied by angelic host. You, you may never thought about this. You, you may not even be aware of this, that when God spoke to Moses and gave the law to him, he administered it through the presence of angels. How do we know that? Look at Deuteronomy 33.2. The Lord came from Sinai and revealed himself to Israel from Seir. He appeared in splendor from Mount Paran and came forth with 10,000 holy ones. With his right hand, he gave a fiery law to them. He gave the law to Moses, but with accompaniment of the angelic host. You know, the angelic hosts in scripture tend to show up at very significant times like they did with the birth of Jesus. They appeared to those shepherds. They appeared to Mary. They appeared to Joseph. So what we have here is this picture of this message that was so important, was accompanied by his holy ones, his angels. We also see in Galatians 3.19, why then was the law given, Paul asks? It was added because of transgressions until the arrival of the descendant to whom the promise had been made. It was administered through angels by an intermediary. That inter- intermediary was Moses, but it was administered by angels. Now we don't fully understand what this means. The scriptures doesn't tell us how they did this role, what role they actually played, but we do know that they were active in this process. And it, it, it tells us that they came to give the law the message that God had given and it was passed on to Moses who then gave it to the people. But one of the things about the law is that it dealt with transgression. It gave the people an idea of what God expected when it came to sin, what sin is, and what he has to do with sin and what they need to do in regards to their sin. See this message that they administered dealt with sin. That was the original message given at Mount Sinai. It provided them, the Israelites, God's code of conduct. It's not that they didn't know right from wrong up until that point, but it made it perfectly painstakingly black and white clear. And it defined what righteousness looked like from God's perspective. See, without the law, I'm free to choose what I think is right and wrong, what I want to do and what I think will offend or please God. So what he wanted to do with his chosen people is I'm gonna clarify it for you. I'm gonna make it so clear, clear and so black and white that you can't ever screw it up. You can't ever mix it up. And so what he does is he shows them, here's my understanding of righteousness. And he says, and it." Requires perfect obedience. See what's you got to keep in mind. Don't forget this fact. These are Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism. They're thinking about reverting back to the law because this gospel doesn't seem to be working. Their Messiah is nowhere to be found. He's dead. He left. He's he's gone. And so they're beginning to wonder. This isn't working out like I thought it would. I'm under persecution. I, I'm not thriving. I'm barely surviving, and so maybe I need to go back to what's comfortable, what's familiar, the law. But see, under the law, it required perfect obedience. And what he says in Matthew or Hebrews chapter two is that that message, that law, that old covenant was reliable. It proved to be reliable, how? He says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. See, he didn't just tell them that here's what I expect and you need to do it. If you didn't do it, it proved reliable because that sin was punished. Here, here's what you need to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, makes it real clear. If you do keep the law, you will be blessed. If you disobey the law, you will be cursed. And so what he's saying is it had just retribution. If you don't obey If you don't hear the message, heed the message, obey the message, there's just retribution. Over in Romans chapter eight, Paul writes this, the law applies to those to whom it was given. Who was it given to? The people of Israel. Who are these people the author of Hebrews is writing to? The people of Israel who've happened to have converted to Christianity. But listen to what he says. The law's purpose is to keep people from having excuses. You have no excuse. It's like When my kids were young and growing up in my home, I I had rules of behavior in my home and they were without excuse if I caught them doing something they weren't supposed to do. They couldn't plead ignorance. I didn't know, dad. No, you knew because I made it clear. Same thing's true here. And to show that the entire world is guilty before God. See, that's important. This message of the law is what they're going back to and what the author wants them to remember is you don't wanna go back to that because that law made it clear that you have a sin problem and it was meant to show you that you're guilty before God. Why would you wanna go back to that? And then he says, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. See, this is what they forgot is all those years, hundreds of years that The Israelites lived under the law. Nobody could keep the law perfectly. That's why there was a sacrificial system. See, God built it into the cake that nobody's going to keep the law. Nobody's going to live sinlessly. So therefore there has to be a sacrificial system so that forgiveness might be received. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Now you can understand why in the book of Hebrews, he's going back to these people saying, man, don't go backwards, go forwards. Don't revert back to Judaism. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to earning and merit because it will get you nowhere. All it can do is show you you're a sinner and you deserve just retribution for your sins. Paul goes on in Galatians chapter three, verse 19. Why then was the law given? I love how Paul beats this drum pretty hard. He wants the people whom he's writing to understand that the law had a purpose behind it. It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. Notice how he now brings in the new covenant and the old covenant as well. That's why many people believe the book of Hebrews was written by Paul because of these similarities between his letters and this letter. But he says, the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised, the Messiah. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who is the mediator between God and the people. So he's saying the same thing that the author of Hebrews is saying, but in a slightly different way. He's saying, the law was given until the promise was fulfilled, until the Messiah came, and then it gets replaced. Because what the Messiah came to bring was something better than the law, something that far surpasses the law, so why would you want to go back to the law? See, here's what the law was defined to do, to define righteousness, but not produce it. You may have never thought about this before, but the Israelites who were given the law now knew what the law was, but it could never make them truly righteous before God. That's why they had to offer sacrifices over and over and over again, because it never could purify them completely. It could convict, but it couldn't empower. In other words, the law couldn't make you righteous. It couldn't give you the power you needed to live the the life it was calling you to live. It could only expose your inability. It could only show you that you're a sinner. You were a sinner, you're still a sinner, and you're gonna sin again tomorrow, which is why the sacrificial system was there. It exposed sin, but it couldn't completely forgive it. Really, the law couldn't forgive sin. It was the sacrificial system that provided that. All the law could do, it was like a divine flashlight shining into your heart going, sin, 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 sin. But it couldn't forgive sin. That's why there was a sacrificial system. It made holiness tangible, understandable. You wanna know what righteousness is? Live like this. But it also made it unachievable. Nobody could live up to God's righteous standard. Moses couldn't live up to that standard. Aaron couldn't live up to that standard. And he was the high priest. And so this is why it was given. That's what it was designed to do. It could disprove works, but it couldn't reward works. It could only show you that your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Your best deed done on your best day with the best of intentions can't bring you reward because it's flawed, because you're a sinner. What it did ultimately was show you need a savior. You need someone to save you. Every sacrifice that was ever made in the tabernacle and later on in the temple in Jerusalem was of a unblemished animal that was a substitute for you to show that you're a sinner. And this unblemished animal was to represent You without sin. It had no sin, but it died in your place. You need a savior. But the problem as we'll see in just a second, that sacrificial system meant that animals were sacrificed over and over again, day after day, year after year, and they couldn't perform what only Jesus could do. In the book of Acts, there's a sermon that Stephen gave and listen to what he says, and he's talking to the people of Israel, the unsaved people of Israel who have just recently crucified their Messiah. He says, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute, and guess what? They couldn't. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's laws, even though you received it from the hands of angels. So here's Stephen saying the same thing that the author of Hebrews has said, and that Paul has said that the law was given through the administration from the hands of angels to Moses and then to them, and yet they still persecuted the prophets and even crucified the Messiah when he showed up. See, this idea that you're gonna go back to the law for the author of Hebrews is ridiculous. It's not just ridiculous, it's absurd. Why would you ever do that? And then he's gonna clarify and he's gonna say, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The angels are not in charge. The angels are not the holy ones who are gonna rule and reign. And then he goes on, he says, of which we are speaking. Speaking of what? The world to come, the eternal kingdom, the the things of the future. And then he says this, it's been testified somewhere. And I love this because whoever this guy was who wrote this book is so knowledgeable of the Hebrew scriptures, but he makes it sound like, you know, somewhere I heard, somewhere I read once, something like this. And he knows exactly what he's talking about. He's quoting from the Psalms. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. I had a guy come up Thursday night right before we started. uh, And and he said, hey, I'm I'm really struggling with this passage. Who's the him? Who's it talking about? Who's this referring to? And it is a difficult passage because it, it, It seems to be talking about Jesus and yet, is it? Who's this one that was made for a little while lower than the angels? What's going on here? It's it's interesting that the author is bringing back angels again. And he's already shown that Jesus is greater than the angels. Uh, He is more powerful. He's worthy of the worship of the angels, but who's this him that was crowned? Well, I believe he's talking about Jesus but he's also talking about Adam because Jesus is Adam 2.0 so to speak he's the improved newer version of Adam now we know who Adam is we know Adam was the first created human being and then came Eve these people being good Jews would have known who Adam was and they would have known all about the creation of Adam but He never mentions Adam in this passage, but I think these Jewish Christians understood the inference because they knew where he was quoting these words from. He's stressing the superiority of Jesus. He's, He's letting them know, don't forget. Yes, he's better than the prophets. He's already stated that back in chapter one. He's better than the angels. He's superior. He's greater than the prophets and the angels but he's even a more improved version of Adam, the first human being. Now, what they know about Adam is the same thing you and I know about Adam. Adam sinned. Adam was created in the image of God, yet he sinned. And they knew that as well. And so he's saying he's better than the original first human being that walked the planet. Why, why is he getting into this? Why is he bringing up this inference to Adam? Well, he does it by quoting Psalm chapter eight, which is a Psalm written by David. And here's what he says. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, when David wrote this, little did he know that he's talking about the future Messiah. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit and he's really talking about what God has done for him he begins talking in chapter eight about the, the creation, the glory of the creation. And then he says, man, who am I? Who, who am I that you're mindful of me, that you would have chosen me and made me the king of all Israel? Who, who am I, the son of man that you care for me, that, that yet you've made me a little bit lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor? See, I think what David is doing is he's looking back and he's saying that I am a son of Adam, and what you did for Adam, you've actually done for me as well. That, that God did all these things for Adam. You made him a little lower than the, the heavenly beings and you crowned him with glory and honor. And then you gave him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. So David is reflecting back on Adam, but he's also saying, and you've done this for me as well. See, this guy had dominion, this guy was a king, this guy had a great kingdom, he had power, he had respect, he had authority, but he's using Adam, the first man, as a reflection of everything that he's been given. See, this passage in chapter eight of Psalm, but also in chapter two of Hebrews is a reference to the creation of man. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter one, verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image, a reference to the Trinity, after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. God is going to make man so that he might have dominion over all his creation. And so David writes this, not knowing that he's really speaking of the future Messiah, He thinks it's a reference to him. But God made Adam as the pinnacle of all creation. He's the last thing that he made. And then he said, it's very good. See, he's the apex of God's creation. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. When he made Adam and Eve, that was the peak, That was the the top, that was the best that he could do after having made the universe, the stars, the sun, the moon, and after having made earth and all the plants and everything that he had made, then he made man and woman after his own own image. And he said, very good. And then he gave them authority. Adam and Eve were to be the co-regents of God Almighty, ruling over all his creation on his behalf, speaking with his authority. What what an incredible job that they had been given. And I think what David knows is that he's been given that same privilege to rule over the nation of Israel, to manage what God had given him. But again, what he didn't know is that he's really prophesying the coming of the Messiah. Because look at what he goes on to say in Hebrews. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, who, Adam, he left nothing outside his control. Adam had power over everything. He could name the animals. He could care for God's creation. He was his co-regent. But then it says, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. I still think this is a reference to Adam because right now, as we live in the world, we know the world is not subject to us. We can't control the wind, the waves. We can't control whether ice comes or doesn't come. We can't control storms, tornadoes. We can't control nature and so we see that at the present, where we're living in this day and age, as was true when the letter of Hebrews was written, man is limited in his sovereignty, in his dominion. See, at present, things aren't quite what they need to be. Why? Because Adam fell. Adam fell from his lofty position. He'd lost something because he sinned. And when he sinned, he was cursed. And not only was he cursed, creation was cursed. And in doing so, he gave up his dominion, his right to rule. He lost that. See, that's the world in which the author of Hebrews is living. That's the the world in which Paul and Stephen live. It's the world in which we live. We've lost our right to rule and we are cursed because we're the descendants of Adam. See, this is the picture this guy is trying to paint for these Jewish Christians who are having second thoughts about their salvation and thinking about going back to the law, to the Mosaic law, to the old covenant, to the old ways. And what they don't realize is that without Jesus Christ, you're cursed. See, what Paul tells the Romans is sin came into the world through one man, who? Adam, and death as a result. Because he sinned, we all die. And death spread to all, because guess what? Because of what he did, he and Eve, all have inherited their sin nature. Everyone comes out of the womb with a sin nature. Every child that's ever been born has a sin nature. And it doesn't take long before that sin nature shows up, right? You you may call it the terrible twos, but whatever it shows up, it shows up in spades. And that's exactly the problem. He goes on in verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. See, when... Adam fell, Adam and Eve fell. When they disobeyed God, the result was death came into the world and many died because of that one action of that one couple. He's not done. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, condemnation from God. And that condemnation was not only physical death, but eternal death, eternal separation from God Almighty. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man the author of Hebrews is not quoting Paul because he doesn't have access to that information. But what Paul is telling us is that this this is the the idea behind everything that the author of Hebrews is trying trying to convey to them by referencing, referencing Adam. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, that here's what happened when God made man and gave him dominion over everything. And then that man and his wife rebelled against God and fell. And as a result of that trespass, death and condemnation became inherited by everyone who descended from them. And he says this in verses 18 and 19, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Who's he talking about? The Messiah, Jesus Christ. The one who David was writing about without knowing it in Psalm chapter eight. And for sure who the author of Hebrews is writing about For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Notice that it says the one man, the one man, but it's talking about two men, right? The one man being Adam, the other man being Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, the Adam who did it right, the Adam who was able to fulfill everything that God called him to do. See, we know this because you look at verse nine and it says, but we see him, who? The second Adam, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, this is where he gets to the whole crux of the matter. And this is what makes this salvation so great because what Jesus Christ did is that he came and he took on human flesh. He was made lower than the angels by becoming a man, by physically becoming human. And it says that now he's crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he sits at the right hand of the Father. See, what's going on here is that something had to happen. Jesus Christ had to come as a man, humble himself, take on human flesh, live on earth under the law, keep the law perfectly and do what Adam never could have done and then suffer death on man's behalf so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is talking about the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, Adam 2.0, the better Adam. And it's all a picture of God's grace, his incredible, matchless, marvelous, amazing grace. And again, verse 17 of Romans 5, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What's amazing about this passage to me is that the author is trying to get these Jewish Christians who are having second thoughts about their salvation, who are thinking about jettisoning jettisoning grace for law to think twice about it and to go back to the free gift of righteousness. They're not going to get righteousness by going back to the law. They're not going to earn favor by returning to keeping the law and the sacrificial system and offering up the blood of bulls and goats, it's not going to work because God had something better. And it was in the form of this one man, Jesus Christ. He's better than Adam. He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to angels. See, the first Adam was given life, but brought death. Just stop and think about that. He was given life by God. It says that God breathed life into his nostrils. And yet, ultimately, because he couldn't live up to God's standards, he brought death. And yet, the last Adam, Jesus, Adam 2.0, was put to death so that he might bring life. So again, why would you go backwards? Why would you return to something that doesn't work? Jesus came to do what Adam could never do, bring life, abundance of life, like we talked about last week, but also eternal life. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, thus it was written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See, Jesus Christ took on human flesh, but he died and then he rose again so that he might deliver eternal life to you and I, so that he might give us life. All Adam can do was bring death But see, Jesus Christ fixed the problem that Adam created. And that's why we go back to the beginning. See, Genesis shows us the genesis of the problem, and the problem is sin. It also reveals the source of the solution. You need a Savior. It's always fascinated me that when Adam and Eve sinned, and they knew that they were guilty, and they were embarrassed, and they hid from God, that God sacrificed an animal so that he might make them clothing to cover their sin. It's a picture of what was going to come, not just through the sacrificial system, but ultimately through Jesus Christ. See, the means of their salvation was suffering. The suffering of Jesus Christ, not their suffering, but his. And that's what he talks about in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist. In other words, he's the creator God that's on that list of that three by five card in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The picture here is not that Jesus was imperfect and then had to suffer to become perfect. See, that's the lie of going back to the law. If I keep the law, I can become perfect. No, the law will only show you how imperfect you are and that you can't keep the law. When it talks about perfection here, it's not talking about Jesus being screwed up and needing to be fixed. It's talking about completeness, that he will complete what he set out to do, that he might be the founder of their salvation, made perfect through suffering, having completed his task by suffering. Jesus Christ took on human flesh so that he could come and die in my place and in your place through suffering. Ultimately, this is talking about his suffering on the cross, not just his suffering by the abuse of the Pharisees, not just the beatings he received, not just being hung on the cross, but his literal suffering in the form of death. See, the great salvation required great great suffering, but here's the cool thing. It didn't require mine. It didn't require yours. That's the beauty of salvation. That's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died in my place, in my stead as a substitute. He's the one who had to suffer. He's the one who had to humble himself by becoming a man. He's the one who left glory and came and took on humanity and endured the pain, the rejection that you and I deserve, the condemnation that was mine. He took on his body and he suffered death. He had to do it. Because had he not done it, we would still be in our trespasses and sins. Had Jesus not been Adam 2.0, the obedient Adam, the perfect Adam, the sinless Adam, then we would have no hope. But we do because he suffered death. I love Philippians chapter two, one of my favorite chapters in the book of the Bible. Paul writes, though he, Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then he goes on and says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, he humbled himself, not just by taking on human flesh, but by being willing to go to the cross and die a sinner's death that he didn't deserve. He became sin on our behalf. And then the author of Hebrews goes on and says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, we're all flesh and blood. We all have that one thing in common that we are all made of the same stuff. He, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. Not just human flesh, but the suffering of human flesh. He hungered, he got tired, he grew weary, he he grew thirsty, he felt pain, he felt hurt. He had sorrow, he wept at Lazarus' tomb. He, He... experienced all the things that we experience, that through death, ultimately he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He came and took on our flesh and experienced what we experience, so that ultimately he might die and put to death the power of death. That he might once and for all gain victory over the enemy by giving us access to life. He became flesh and blood. He became human. See these people were beginning to question well we know he was human but he's nowhere to be found he's dead he's gone he's he's either dead and in the grave he's in sheol or maybe he's up in heaven we don't know but he's nowhere to be found and if he's the messiah he should be here ruling and reigning but see the author's getting to understand no 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 you don't understand that Jesus did become human flesh so that he could die, but so that he could also be resurrected and return to the Father so that he could then give you the gift of eternal life. He had to become a man. He had to live. He had to die and suffer the penalty for mankind's sin and death. Otherwise, there is no gospel. There is no good news. There is no hope. See, a sacrifice was required. It was either, either gonna be their lives, the life of an animal, or it was gonna be the Messiah. And here's what we know. The animal sacrifice is never measured up. The animal sacrifices couldn't do what they needed done. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. See, in other words, if you go back to the law, if you go back to the sacrificial system, if you go back to hoping that the blood of bulls and goats are gonna cleanse you, you're barking up the wrong tree. Because he goes on and says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? If they worked, why do we have to keep offering more? Why are the sacrifices done year after year after year? And why would you go back to something that never seems to ever do what it seems to be designed to do? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, the author of Hebrews chapter 10, a little bit later on in the letters is reminding these very same Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to the old covenant, to the law, don't do it. Because he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, that he could once and for all nip this thing in the bud and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery to what? Slavery to death, slavery to sin, slavery to condemnation. And Jesus Christ became a man so that he might help the offspring of Abraham. These very people understand the joy of freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from condemnation. But verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to satisfy the just demands of a holy God. He became like you and I in every respect. He became human. He became flesh and blood. He came as an infant. He grew up to be a man. He lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death, even though he committed no sins. And then he rose from the dead and he ascended on high and he sits at the right hand of the father. He became one of us so that he could die for us. See, I love what Paul writes to the Romans. God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, Jesus Christ, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. That's the bottom line. That's what this whole book is about. That's what the whole Bible is about. And that's why in chapter three, he says, therefore, holy brothers, my brothers in Jesus Christ, I need you to hear me, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. See, here we go from talking about Adam, talking about angels, talking about prophets, to talking about Moses that he's even better than Moses. The one who gave them the law, the one who came down off of Mount Sinai and his face glowed because he had been with the Lord. No, Moses is nothing compared to Jesus. And it basically says, consider Jesus. That that word in the Greek means take a good, long, hard look at Jesus. He's the last Adam. He's the life-giving spirit. He's the apostle. He's the sent one. He's the final sent one. He's the last of the prophets. And he is our faithful high priest. He has done what needs to be done. See, he's the law keeper, not just the law giver. That's the significance. And that's why he's worthy of glory and honor. So Paul writes, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by what? Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith, who completes our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. This is how chapter one opens up. Jesus Christ is the son of God sitting on the right hand of God the father. He has been resurrected. He is now sitting in heaven. And one day we are going to join him. So I know this is a lot of information, but it's going to get expanded as we make our way through the rest of this book. But this, in this lesson, here's what I need you to think about. How does the world get you and I to take our eyes off of Jesus? And what can we do about it? See, the world is distracting us all the time to take our eyes off, to stop considering Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, and to start looking at anything and everything but him. How does the world do it? And what what can we do to stop doing it so that we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? I want you to go back and, and read 1 Corinthians 15, 48 through 49. Why should this passage be a source of encouragement to us? Take some time, read it, read it, Talk about it and then consider, why is that an encouragement? Then finally, the author stressed the faithfulness of Moses, the faithfulness of Jesus. What does faithfulness look like in our cultural context? How do you and I remain faithful in this world in which we live? That seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. That seems to be getting worse each and every day. How do we remain faithful when it is distracting us, when it is deceiving us, when it is trying to take our eyes off the Savior How do we remain faithful? Well, Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for inspiring the author to write it so that we might read it thousands of years later. And it's still relevant. It's still powerful. It's still impactful. It's still convicting, but it's also encouraging. Father, I want to keep my eyes focused on your son in 2024. I want to see him. I want to think about him. I want to consider him. Take a long, hard look at him and everything that he's done, everything he's doing and what is yet to be done, his soon return. Father, help us to keep our eyes focused on the son, the perfect Adam, the better prophet, the better Moses, the one who we can trust to complete what he's done. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus, amen.